You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. So let's take a break today, friends, from the series that I've been working on here at Resurrection Life. Uh, And let's do that because uh, I have just returned from, as I measure it, the trip of a lifetime. And I want to share with you about it. Uh, My wife, Ash, and I uh, just returned from three weeks uh, of travel in England and Scotland and even a little jaunt into the country of Wales. And uh, we had multiple purposes for doing this. Uh, We were planning this trip in order to go and visit our daughter, Allie, uh, who's finishing up, uh, or who has just finished up, uh, her studies at Oxford there in England. Uh, She has finished her master's uh, in medieval history, or as they somewhat pretentiously say in Oxford, her M-Phil. So we were going to see Allie and to see the little world that she has been living these last couple of years. Uh, We were also going, Ashley and I, uh, in celebration of our 25th wedding anniversary. That was our excuse for uh, taking such an extravagant amount of time uh, and uh, spending it uh, traveling all over uh, the British Isles. Uh, But folks, I also uh, viewed this trip, as I said to the folks at Resurrection, uh, as kind of a Presbyterian pilgrimage. Uh, We were, after all, going to the motherland of Presbyterianism, both England and Scotland, in fact. Uh, England, of course, because the great Westminster Confession of Faith and catechisms were uh, penned there in Westminster Abbey in London, and uh, so much of Presbyterian origins and history is tied to the Puritan movement in England. But then, of course, uh, going to Scotland was certainly the uh, pilgrimage to the motherland of Presbyterianism. Uh, That is uh, where our particular church tradition uh, arose, the great uh, Reformation efforts of men like John Knox and others who uh, joined him in bringing Protestantism uh, to that little country of Scotland. So, Uh, I was very much mindful of the history of the places uh, that we were going to and uh, took it upon myself to refresh my memory of that history and to dig even deeper in certain respects uh, into the history of uh, Protestantism in England and Scotland, but also even more uh, deeply of Christianity as a whole in that part of the world. Well, I came back from the trip uh, just swimming in various uh, strong impressions received uh, from the travels and uh, somewhat dizzied by it all, and I found it helpful to try to organize my thoughts in a little presentation that I gave at Resurrection this past Lord's Day. And... um, In that adult Sunday school hour, I uh, reported on my Presbyterian pilgrimage uh, to the saints at Resurrection, and I uh, gave them what I had summed up to be five uh, very strong impressions received 
uh, from traveling uh, there in the birthplace of uh, our particular church tradition. Uh, so I'm actually going to uh, play a recording of that uh, Sunday School presentation uh, here in this podcast, but because uh, the very first part of it was lost, uh, I am beginning it here with a made-for-podcast recording, and then it will splice uh, in a few minutes with uh, what was recorded on Sunday. I hope it will be of edification uh, as a little pause in our uh, larger series uh, at Resurrection Life. Uh, so of the five points that I made, five uh, strong impressions received from my time there, uh, the first was this. I spoke first of the glorious conquest uh, of Christian missions. That was borne home to me and to my wife as we traveled on various parts of England and Scotland and Wales. So uh, to illustrate this, let me begin with uh, something that we put on our itinerary, something we wanted very much to see while we were there, and that is uh, the phenomenon called Hadrian's Wall. Many of you will know uh, what I'm referring to there. Uh, Hadrian's Wall uh, is just that. It is the remains of a very early construction by uh, the Romans uh, that bisects uh, what is very roughly speaking England from Scotland. Uh, it's a wall that runs across uh, that island, and uh, it is uh, in many respects still uh, quite a magnificent uh, accomplishment of the Romans. But why uh, is it there? Why this wall? Well, uh, go back with me in your mind to the first century and to a very Roman world, uh, the Roman power uh, and reach of authority at, is uh, at its zenith or very near to it. Uh, and in addition to crushing uh, rebellions within its realm, like, for example, in Jerusalem, uh, in A.D. 70, when the Jews revolt against Roman rule and the, uh, the temple and the city is destroyed, uh, in far-flung parts of the empire, uh, the Romans are doing what the Romans did so well. They're conquering and they're claiming lands and they're bringing the Roman way uh, to various civilizations. In the first century, they were quite successful in doing that uh, in what we now call England. Uh, England came under the um, sway of Rome, and I will say that uh, as brutal as Roman power was uh, in conquering other lands, uh, there were, on the backside of that conquest, there were certainly uh, benefits that came to be enjoyed by those conquered by Rome. Um, Civilization, uh, as uh, we think of it in the West, uh, came to those regions of the world. Uh, in our travels, we went past the city of Bath, England, and we didn't stop. Uh, we had too many other things to do, but uh, our daughter told us about uh, one of the features there in Bath, which is the remains, fairly uh, remarkably preserved remains, of an ancient Roman 
bath the Romans had constructed a, oh, I guess you'd call it an ancient spa. And (laughs) you can still see where uh, the waters uh, came and were corralled and uh, I presume the uh, upper crust could enjoy all the benefits of a first century spa. So uh, my point is there were benefits to coming under the um, authority and uh, within the empire of Rome, and England came uh, to be securely within that. But then there was the land to the north of England. Uh, we know it now as Scotland, but at that time it was called Caldonia. And of course, the Romans uh, set their sights on conquering Caldonia as well. But they were not as successful. As a matter of fact, over time, it came to be a fairly colossal failure on the part of the Romans uh, to subjugate the Caledonian people. Now, uh, that has to do with a number of factors, but most prominent among them uh, is that this was a people group, to use a, I suppose now, politically incorrect word, that were utter savages. Uh, Sometimes they're known as the Picts. And there's a lot of legends about the savagery of these uh, (laughs) barbarous people. Uh, Some of them may be a little uncertain uh, as to their uh, factualness. Uh, I'm not sure we actually know that they painted their faces blue uh, as they went into battle. I'm not sure if that's exactly uh, a a decided fact of history. Uh, We do know, by the way, that uh, by the time William Wallace was fighting on behalf of Scotland, uh, he was most certainly not painting his face blue despite what Mel Gibson would have you believe in the movie Braveheart. But that blue face paint uh, is uh, uh, originally uh, associated with this very ancient and very savage uh, people group of modern-day Scotland, then Caledonia. And the point is, the Romans, with all of their sophistication and their military might, Uh, certainly won many a battle against the Picts, but unlike other regions of the world, the Picts were simply not willing to cede uh, control of their land to the Romans. They weren't going to give up. And so at some point, the Romans, doing some cost-benefit analysis, uh, decided this is just not worth it. It's not worth it to us to expend the resources to conquer the Caledonians, what we call modern-day Scotland. Well, Emperor Hadrian, now in the second century, uh, decided that in order to protect uh, that part of the island that was under Roman control from these savage northerners, uh, he would simply build a wall. Now, I say simply build a wall. Hadrian's wall is a massive engineering accomplishment built in or begun at least in 122 AD. Uh, The wall is 73 miles long. It was not just a uh, stone wall. 
Uh, it was a wall that uh, had trenches on either side of it to enable it to be defended. And along the wall at uh, certain uh, spacings, uh, there were uh, places for Romans to be quartered, soldiers to be quartered, uh, and so on. It became uh, a great defensive uh, tool of the empire, uh, acknowledging, in effect, uh, that the land to the north was unconquerable, even by so great a nation as Rome. Now, that's Hadrian's Wall. Why do I start there in making the point uh, that the land of England and especially now of Scotland shows the glorious conquest of Christian missions. Well, it's to make this point. Folks, uh, traveling in Scotland in particular drives home the reality that where the might of the Roman Empire failed, the might of the kingdom of Jesus Christ prevailed. Uh, let me tell you about uh, St. Columba. St. Columba was uh, originally from Ireland, which itself had come under Christian influence by one we now know of as St. Patrick. Uh, but St. Columba was sent, or he voluntarily left, there's some question about the two uh, possible scenarios, from Ireland uh, to what was then... Um, the land we call Scotland, and he landed in this uh, rather small island called Iona to the west, on the west coast of Scotland. Uh, Iona, tiny little island, is where St. Columba, uh, as a missionary, first set up uh, a monastic community as a kind of staging ground for his great ambition to bring Christianity to Scotland. Now, the story of Iona is somewhat famous to this day. Uh, around 563 is when we uh, think uh, St. Columba came, and Iona did, in fact, become what's known as the birthplace of Celtic Christianity uh, in Scotland. Uh, St. Columba was successful in bringing Christianity to these savage peoples uh, that the Romans had failed to conquer by the might of the sword. Uh, that's St. Columba. That's Iona. You can go there today and uh, you can see what they have reconstructed uh, of the original uh, community that uh, St. Columba uh, founded and some of those famous Celtic crosses that are uh, quite the fashion in many parts of uh, Presbyterianism since, uh, are actually found there on that island, some of the original versions of those Celtic crosses. That's uh, the significance of Iona, one island. We also visited on the other end of the island and the other end of our trip, uh, another uh, site of the advance of the gospel into Scotland on the east coast uh, it's actually in northern England, just below the border of Scotland, and it's the island of Lindisfarne, uh, sometimes called Holy Island now. Uh, this was in a parallel way, uh, a little bit later, 634, where another uh, missionary, this one we now know of as St. Aidan, 
uh, set up a community uh, with the view to being a staging ground, an advance post for taking the gospel into Scotland. Uh, by the way, we as Protestants have some mixed feelings about monastic communities. Uh, we see some defective theology behind some of the assumptions in them, and we see some um, historically uh, bad practice uh, within it. But folks, at their best throughout the history of the church, uh, these communities uh, were for the spiritual kingdom of Christ what castles came to be for uh, earthly empires and empire builders. They became places where resources of the kingdom of Christ could be gathered and developed and used as a staging ground, as I've been saying it, uh, for advancing uh, the kingdom of Christ into new regions of the world. Between Iona with St. Columba and Holy Island and St. Aidan, folks in those beginnings and in the years that followed, Scotland along with England, came under the dramatic sway of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And they were Christianized. Christendom was established even among the descendants of those savage Picts uh, that the Roman Emperor Hadrian said, yeah, we, we don't have time to try. Uh, to expend the resources needed to conquer that people. It is so encouraging to think about uh, the conquest of Christian missions represented there in England and Scotland in particular, but also seen throughout church history in all parts of the world. If you do travel or if you have traveled uh, to Europe, and uh, in this case, if you've traveled to the British Isles, I hope that you will be profoundly impressed with the fact that it is a land of churches and cathedrals. Everywhere you look, there are a, a stone and mortar, uh, undeniable evidences of the sway of Christianity on this part of the world. And where the Romans failed... Christ and his faithful servants advancing his kingdom prevailed, and that was of such encouragement to us as we traveled around uh, that part of the world. What one man can do, I'll just add, what one man can do, uh, let us not underestimate. Well, uh, that was my first great impression, uh, traveling to England and Scotland, and uh, it's roughly about here that my presentation to the folks at Resurrection picks up. It's where I'm introducing my second of five uh, great impressions. And the second is the high price of Reformation. So I will uh, turn things over now to that presentation uh, if you continue to listen on. There's also signs everywhere, if you're looking for them, of the high price of Reformation. I'm speaking of the Protestant Reformation uh, specifically. Uh, so you'll know, well, the, the details can so easily become fuzzy and the chronologies are still confusing to me, but you'll know that there were two 
bloody conflicts uh, that racked those lands of England and Scotland and Wales as a result of the mighty work of God we call the Protestant Reformation. The first was the conflict between Catholic and Protestant. Remember that Henry VIII and all of his dubious character and motives was the man used by God to break the grip of Rome on England. Henry VIII wanted to have a divorce and he wanted to marry someone who would give him an heir and so he had all manner of unworthy motives. But the Protestant Reformation came as men around this man took advantage of the opportunity to reform the worship uh, of uh, the English people. And so men like Thomas Cranmer, you know that name, or uh, Latimer, or uh, Ridley, Nicholas Ridley, were influential in reordering the Church of England along fundamentally Protestant lines. It was glorious. And initially, it was bloodless until the monarch was no longer Henry VIII or his very young son who died young. It was a woman named Mary who was Catholic, who came to be known as Bloody Mary, who was resolved to undo everything that had been accomplished to reform England along the Protestant doctrines. So hundreds died in England if they were unwilling to themselves recant their newfound Protestant convictions. And the most famous are those Oxford martyrs, uh, Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley. And uh, Ali took us to the place there in Oxford where they were burned alive. There's a monument uh, to their remembrance there, uh, nearby that place. And many others uh, joined them. We know that eventually Protestantism was to prevail, and the church in England would become Anglican. That leads me to the second kind of bloody conflict over Reformation, Protestant Reformation in the British Isles, and that was between the Crown there in London and the Anglican, the new Anglican establishment and the Scottish covenanters, as they came to be called. Use that expression, the Scottish Covenanters. Uh, we're talking about the fact that, uh, thanks to John Knox and some very noble men with him, uh, a more precise and thoroughgoing Protestant Reformation was taking place in Scotland than in England. And there's a long-standing rivalry between England and Scotland. That's putting it mildly. But the Scots were determined... Uh, to fully reform their land and their church. And at one point, uh, thousands of them signed a document. We saw one of the original copies of it called the National Covenant. And this lengthy document with lots of details, with uh, a hard to count number of signatures on it by both uh, nobles and peasants alike, was signed at a church called Greyfriars Kirk. 
made famous by a little Christian school here in Matthews. Actually, yeah. It's interesting to see how even secular historians record the significance of what was happening in the signing of the National Covenant by all these Scotsmen and women, uh, high and low. I don't know if any women signed. Sorry, may not have been appropriate. I don't know. They signed it there at Greyfriars, the church. And if I can summarize with a little bit of my tongue in my cheek what they were saying, they were essentially saying this to each other, but especially to the English down there in the south. They were saying this. We're really thankful for God's work in reforming the church in England. We praise God that there's been real corruption rooted out of the church thanks to the English Reformation. We're thankful that there's been greater truth. But we need you all to know yours is a half-baked Reformation. You need to know that. And we up here in Scotland, we're going the whole way. We're doing it all. So you see, what was particularly offensive to the Scots was that the English were willing to lose a pope who was in himself, in all of his human fallibility, declaring himself the head of the church and simply replace the pope with the king. King Henry VIII declared himself the human head of the church. He was not willing to take all the power and the resources of the Church of England and make that something separate from his political royal power. He had a saying, and some of his Anglican king's successors repeated it, no bishop, no king. So there will be bishops with all their power over all manner of society. There will be bishops and there will be bishops who report to me. In Scotland. Well, those who signed the National Covenant were saying, no, there won't. (laughs) There There will be no king over the Church of Jesus Christ. Christ alone is head of his church. And by the way, we don't even see bishops... In the Bible, the way you do. So we have a different form of government, just so you know. So that's the National Covenant. Uh, Those who signed the National Covenant came to be known as the Covenanters. And in the king's eyes, the king there in London, they were guilty of treason. Uh, It came to be that if you were not willing to renounce the National Covenant signed there at Greyfriars Church, you could be executed for treason. I said to you, hundreds died in the English uh, Protestant-Catholic conflict. Thousands of Scotsmen and women died in Scotland for the refusal, fundamentally, to acknowledge a fallible man as head of the church. 18,000 is the best estimate we have of how many Presbyterian, Scotch Presbyterian covenanters died. Uh, I'm sure this was intentional, but there's also some practical reasons for it. 
Uh, so many were being arrested, tried and hung there in Edinburgh. They needed a place to put them. And so they corralled them into the cemetery of Greyfriars Church. Uh, providentially, there was walls on three sides and they could hem them in there and guard them until they could all be sentenced. Typically put to death by hanging, those who were considered to be fomenters of rebellion against the king were given much more savage treatment than hanging. And again, even women were put to death. This is a very sobering thing, and I'm thankful that in Scotland, even in the Scottish Museum, they have displays to make sure that it's not forgotten, the suffering of our covenanter fathers. Uh, a high price for reformation. But here's the thing. God honored their blood. So, England is not Catholic. It's Anglican. Uh, even if we're dissatisfied with the uh, sort of compromise that Anglicanism is, and it is an ecclesiastical compromise between Protestantism and Catholicism, uh, God honored the blood of Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley and others less well-known. Uh, and eventually, the Church of England would be Protestant. Likewise, against all of the concerted efforts of more than one king, to include good Queen Elizabeth, to make Scotland Anglican in all that it represented, it's not. It's a Presbyterian land. You'll see it as you see all the Presbyterian churches all throughout the land. I was just impressed with how the times of Chime and Souls, as it's been put, are also times that breed Giants. Giants. Men who accomplished so much in such a little amount of time against so many odds. It's all of the Lord. Uh, that's an encouragement to me that uh, if persecution does in fact loom for us as a church, uh, there may be blood. There will also be giants. By the way, I, I turned 54 this week, uh, a very unacceptable birthday, except that I, it came to my attention recently, 54 is the age which John Calvin died. That's remarkable. At least to me, you are younger, and I know it's not so remarkable, but that's a lot to accomplish in that space of time. Closely related to the high price of Reformation, which was impression number two, is impression number three, which was the conscientiousness of the martyrs. And I mean that in a rather robust sense. Here's the thing, folks. With some exceptions, you didn't have to die in England or in Scotland if you would just recant your stated former convictions. 
if Cranmer would just say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said what I said about the sacrament of communion as part of my efforts to reform the church along Protestant lines. If Cranmer would simply say that, he wouldn't die. And some of you know, Cranmer actually at first did say that. Cranmer is the one we credit with writing the first edition of the Book of Common Prayer. It's a magnificent book of prayers and liturgies for the Protestant church in England. But when this godly man was faced with the dilemma, do I stand on my Protestant convictions and bear testimony to it? Or do I burn alive? At first he said, I recant. Cranmer didn't die with Latimer and Ridley. They died in Oxford, the two of them, knowing that Cranmer had flinched. He'd signed what he needed to sign to save his skin. Now you know the, name, the rest of the story, some of you. Cranmer eventually did die. Right there where Latimer and Ridley died. A year later, I, I can't imagine the torments of his soul. A year later, having gone back to the authorities and said, I recant my recantation. He was burned to the stake. And you know that rather dramatically and powerfully, he thrust his right hand, the hand that he wrote his recantation with, he thrust it into flames and said, let this be part of me that dies first. Uh, in the foyer of the Westminster Confession picture is the Westminster Divines debating and crafting the section in the Confession on liberty of conscience. So they're trying to articulate no human can set himself over the Word of God in telling us what to believe or confess. Now, what does it take to be a martyr? Well, among other things, it takes having a conscience. I find myself wondering, how are we doing in that area, in the American church? If there is going to be suffering ahead for us in light of our convictions. I think what's immediately ahead for the American church is the question, is my conscience, what I believe and convince the Bible teaches, and what I must bear testimony to, is it worth losing my job for? I think that's what's directly ahead. We're already there. Some of you know this. Your experience. Is my conscience worth losing my job for? Because after all, you know, you've got to eat. Right? You have to bear true witness of Christ. That's what you have to do. In uh, Scotland, it's so staggering to me to think 
read a story while I was there of a young woman who was eventually sentenced to drowning. She was tied to a stake uh, as the surf came in, the, the waves, the tide came in. But she was simply asked to say, just say this, God save the king. Just say, God save the king, woman. You know, that's a biblical expression. It's in the Psalms. God save the king. But that young lady, her sister was 12. Her father was able to buy her freedom. She was 18. He had no more money. She died in the ways because she would not say, God save the king. And she wouldn't say that because you say that to God's anointed. David was the anointed king of God. God's rule and David's rule were one. He was Messiah, small m, the anointed. Who do we say that of now? One person, Jesus Christ. She wouldn't say it. She would not say God saved the king. She knew what that would be testifying to in her context. So she was willing to die. So we'll need to have more than a theology of when to lose our jobs as Christians. We'll need to have a theology of when to lose our life. And it was born home to me, something I've said from this pulpit. Not all of God's truth is equally important. We can look at teachings in the Bible that are absolutely central and must be believed to be saved. And there are others that, well, there's a lot of confusion in the church. So we can say that. Not all of God's truth is equally important. But notice, all of God's truth is worth dying for. It's all that important. Impression number four. I went back to see the motherland, and I come back deeply impressed with the decay of Mother Church in England and Scotland. So I told you about going to Iona, where Columba first landed and set up his staging ground for taking over Scotland with the Christianity. It's also very disheartening to see what the medieval church would do with great men like St. Columba. They make shrines out of places where they worked. They take his body. They take it out of the grave. They dismember it. They send it throughout the churches as relics so that if you can be in a place where Columba's toe is, You'll be closer to God. This is medieval superstition. I became convinced that it's pagan ancestor worship at its worst. Uh, And that's the kind of darkness uh, that the Protestant Reformation was seeking to dispel as it came to those lands. You expect that uh, in Roman Catholicism to this day, and you know that that continues in various forms in Catholicism. 
But we saw a great deal of high Anglicanism just in our touring, just in going in some of these cathedrals uh, that made us think that high Anglicanism is hard to distinguish from Roman Catholicism. Uh, met a couple of Anglican ministers who uh, had or were in the process of leaving the Anglican Church because they said, just, we just can't, we can't do it anymore. In some ways, the Anglican Church is more progressive, which is to say, in a deeper state of rot than the uh, Catholic Church. Because at least in the Catholic Church, there is this thing called tradition that serves as a kind of break job. Anglicanism is full bore into all the sexual perversions and the the approving of them uh, in our day. We went to one cathedral. Actually, I think it was... It was Durham Cathedral, magnificent. We wanted to see some of the best the country had to offer. And there's this massive globe, plastic, I think, fabric globe suspended there in the nave of the church. My wife caught a, a glimpse of, of the name of, a, of the earth god. can't remember. Uh, and, of course, it was to celebrate environmentalism and what have you. Uh, but it was so, it felt like Paul, I felt like Paul in Athens, my spirit vexed uh, to see this. My wife had vandalistic impulses, but I restrained her. <laughs> and she was a good girl. We just left. The glory of England and Scotland in terms of the church is past. Churches are, are beautiful edifices with no people. Remember the, here's the church, here's the steeple. Open the doors. Where are the people? That's England. Scotland. Scotland has those high pulpits because they were making much of the preaching of God's word as the way of advancing the kingdom. But we went into one church, beautiful not a cathedral, but a beautiful church there. And as we asked the very, very old man who was letting us in and showing us around, do they still preach from there? Does the minister still preach from there? And he said, no, she doesn't. She preaches from the floor. Because there's only about six or eight of us. So, it's a church in advanced state of decay, and churches are being repurposed, the buildings, uh, if you will. I will say to you uh, that there is still life. There is still a remnant. Uh, we worshipped in a Presbyterian church uh, in a rented facility uh, in the city of York that looked and felt a lot like Resurrection Presbyterian Church, right down to all the noisy kids. It's wonderful to see that. There is, in the Presbyterian Church, still a remnant that is uh, alive. Uh, a mega church in England is six or 800 people. That is a mega church in England. And there are a couple of mega churches that we were exposed to or made known to us in the two university towns. In Oxford, there's a mega Anglican church that's evangelical. It actually doesn't look and feel like an Anglican church. 
uh, but it's one of the big churches. So also in Cambridge, where we visited a sister church of that Anglican church, a mega church uh, where there is a great deal of the spirit's work still. And folks, even in Catholicism, the Holy Spirit is at work. Oxford is a university we in the Trice family now know that is somewhat of a center of very intellectual and earnest Roman Catholics. These are the Roman Catholics that are socially very conservative. They would identify with our Supreme Court justices who happen to be Roman Catholic. Um, They have found each other at Oxford and speak of seeking to be, um, I don't think they use the word reforming, uh, but an influence for good in the Catholic Church. They won't miss the current pope who's ailing right now. When I say that God is at work in the Catholic Church, uh, we uh, visited with Ali's roommate uh, the day before we flew back. Uh, she's from Trinidad. And she is a devout Roman Catholic. Uh, she, at one point, as we could talk, gave us her testimony. She grew up in a nominal Catholic home in Trinidad with no friendly influence towards real saving faith. But she walked us through how she encountered things in confirmation class about the teachings of the church that conflicted with everything she knew about all the Catholics in her life. And she had this crisis. Do I believe the teachings of the church? Or do I cease being a Christian altogether? And as she described uh, an awakening in her own heart, uh, her willingness to stand with absolutely no one in her Immediate life for Christ and his kingdom. She understood it. The salvation uniquely found in him. Uh, We had tears in our cheeks. Now, I wish I could tell you that the rest of the story was, she said, and so I became a Presbyterian. That wasn't the rest of her story. She became a devout Catholic, seeking to be part of the work of the Spirit in the Catholic Church. So I'll even say to you, in the midst of all that decay, whether it's in the Presbyterian Church, all but dead, the Anglican Church, all but dead, the Roman Catholic Church, a a massively corrupted institution, there are embers more than enough for the Holy Spirit to whip up into a fire. We ought to pray. My last impression, as I come back to... America is the importance of American Christianity. Um, I don't know if you've realized this, but Americans, when they travel abroad, are known as somewhat self-important people. You know that? They're the ones who are a little louder than the others. They have expectations. They communicate They're very assertive. That's the American persona, at least that's what I'm told. It's very different from the British uh, persona, for sure. Folks, uh, I don't love that. But I think Americans can be self-important 
out of an awareness of just how important America is. And I am not interested at the moment politically and geopolitically and all that. I'm interested for the moment in remembering how important America is for Christianity in the world. We are so distressed by decay in the church, in our land. Indeed, we have reason to be. By comparison, oh, folks, America, by comparison, it's still the spiritual breadbasket of the church abroad. Talked with a variety of people that described things that are non-issues in British evangelicalism. Christian school movement, homeschool movement, <laughs> even less. Pro-life movement, no. No. And they look with some awe at what American, especially evangelical Americans, are able to do when the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade. That was not just a, a shock to the United States. It was to the world and to some in that part of the country where I just spent time. If that can happen, what else could happen? So this is not a plug for American exceptionalism, but I do want uh, to warn against American pessimism. Uh, we can continue to pray, not just selfishly, the Lord would preserve his church in America, but also with the sense that as he does that, He'll continue to make this country a tremendous resource for the church abroad. So thankful to be an American Presbyterian, though it was wonderful to be in the homeland. Well, I hope that's edifying to you. It's certainly helpful to me to get a little bit of a bead on all the things that I am swimming in by way of impressions. Uh, very thankful the Lord brought us back in one piece. I was driving for three weeks on the wrong side of the road. And that little bit in my sermon about God sparing us from the consequences of our own mistakes, that happened a time or two uh, driving over there. I could um, I have a strong opinion about the traffic system in the UK, but that's not relevant to our purposes here. You've been listening to another episode of Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. This is a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sharing it with someone you know. Thank you for joining us.